I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this week's episode of The Trade Guys, they discuss the economic situation in the United Kingdom and how it affects trade, a possible outbound investment review mechanism, and enforcement of the MC-12 fisheries deal. All that and more on this week's episode. Hey, trade guys, we are back. Just when you uh, thought you escaped me, here I am, guest moderating. Andrew will be back next week. Let's go ahead and kick off today's episode with what's happening in the United Kingdom, where the pound almost reached parity with the dollar. I think it's recovered quite a bit today. What's going on? Well, Emily, it's always good to have you back. and You're welcome anytime. But you're, you're an honorary trade guy after all these appearances on the program, so we're delighted to have you. Well, it's, it's interesting because in the midst of what's basically a budget crisis, there was a uh, sort of a meltdown of both the budget and pressure on the currency in the United Kingdom. The backdrop is that the government, the new government led by Prime Minister Truss, proposed a big spending plan, including tax cuts and some supply side efforts, which didn't really amount to that much economically, as best I can tell. And as a result, there was concern over whether the payments could be made in the long run and ultimately the value of the pound. The pound came under a lot of pressure. That happens from time to time. In this world of floating exchange rates, which we can thank Richard Nixon for starting in 1971, when the United States had a balance of payments crisis and basically ended the era of fixed exchange rates. Floating exchange rates are sort of a shock absorber mechanism. And so when exchange rates rise and fall, that usually is a way that large, advanced economies at least, manage shocks to the system. It's probably better than a balance of payments crisis, certainly. Now, it's hard in all this to devalue to prosperity. So the pound did devalue. It was ultimately defended, particularly in the long-term bond, their 30-year guilt, what they call it. And that was a very important defense, I think, by the, the government and the bank of England, because the long bonds are what funds pension pension programs. And so the confidence of the long bonds, value of the long bonds, is very important to the solvency of their of their pension system. But that seemed to seem to sort of stop the immediate meltdown. However, almost no advanced economy can actually devalue to prosperity. When you devalue your currency, clearly your exports become more attractive, but your imports become pricier. And in the case of the UK right now, they're importing a lot of energy. That energy is priced in dollars. And the devaluation of the pound from from $1.30 or roughly wherever it was a month or two ago to a dollar and change makes those energy imports much more expensive. And then it also, it tends to hinder equalization and raises interest rates in the rest of the economy because of, there's uncertainty about you know what the values are and how, how the long-term finances work out. Now, look, I think that the UK, first of all, is a big economy. A lot of uh, countries hold their currency. And uh, unlike other, say, the European Union or the euro, you have fiscal and monetary policy under the same roof. So the, the government, through direct or indirect measures, is in control of both the fiscal and monetary policy. That's an advantage, frankly, versus the euro, where member states control the fiscal policy and the Euro- European Currency Board controls monetary policy. 
And there's always tension there that has the ECB with usually less maneuverability. They're in a situation where I think they're going to be okay. They're going to have to raise rates probably more than they would like to, to continue to protect the pound. By doing so, they won't make a recession more likely. So this is a tough situation all around that's being reflected in the currencies. But it is, it's an amazing uh, response. And one of the writers in the Wall Street Journal, John Sindhu, covered it. And he recalled the famous James Carville quotation from the mid-90s, where uh, James Carville was, of course, the famous uh, Louisiana native who was the campaign guru for Bill Clinton, a very successful campaign strategist and political figure. But he always said he'd like to be reincarnated as the bond market. Because if you, if you can't control anything in politics, the bond market, when the bond market gets upset, that controls spending and lots of other things. I think he'd rather be the currency than a bond market, but we'll, we'll see. In any case, it's tough shape in Europe, the, the UK, mostly related to energy costs and the pressure on the, their economy, which is creating budget pressures all around. It'll spill out in things like currency, which it did, but it's uh, part of today's volatility. Well, let me... Let me pursue that with a question for Scott, because I'm confused, not by what you said, but but looking at it from the American point of view, if the pound is down, it means the dollar is up and yes. the euro is down, has been down, has been, the euro is also at near parity. The yen has been going down rather significantly, actually, over the last year or so. So we now have a situation where the dollar is essentially peaking, yet as of this month, our trade deficit is down compared to the previous month and our exports are surprisingly up. Now, there's a lag. So what happened in the UK isn't going to affect, you know, data from last month. But the euro depreciation and the yen depreciation are old news. So, Scott, why is our deficit declining and our exports growing when the dollar is getting stronger? Well, you're right. The near-term numbers have probably not been reflected yet. But overall exchange rates uh, are determined in the long run with the economic productivity or, or labor productivity expressed in purchasing power. That's sort of the long-term equilibrium state of an exchange rate. One of the reasons that I think you're not seeing uh, big export gains by European countries or firms is a, is a competitiveness issue. When you're paying a lot more for your energy inputs, when your expenses are rising, net-net, even, even with, a, with a depreciated currency, your exports don't benefit from it as much as you'd like it to. Uh, now, the, the Japan had probably done the best job of, of positioning themselves to defend their currency. They have substantial foreign reserves, unlike, say, Canada or further in the economic scale. Turkey uh, had very few reserves to defend its currency and got crushed in the market. So there's a lot going on that is based on the country's ability to stabilize what's going on. Uh, but you're right. I think what you're, what you're seeing are difficulties with competitiveness that are translating into, despite the strong dollar and the weak euro, yen, and pound, is not translating into export success for those markets yet. So we'll have to see over a longer term. Well, it seems to me, too, that to the extent that the, the U.S. Fed continues to bump up our interest rates, the dollar is only going to get stronger. That's right. And, and clearly, one of the things that all these other economies will have to do is raise their target interest rates to avoid capital flight. So the Fed tightening. Uh, now, keep in mind, we've had zero interest rates since roughly 2008 or 2009. Quantitative easing lasted a very long time. There's a huge difference between uh, the Fed at, at a 4.5% discount rate, whatever their final target they presume to be, and essentially zero. Uh, so there's going to be huge adjustments. You're seeing it every day 
in volatility in bonds and currency. So in a way, that suggests we at least are getting back to what used to be normal. Yes. But getting there is going to be an adjustment process for people that aren't used to it. That's right. It'll be rocky. There'll be a lot of projects that were approved with low interest rates that no longer make economic sense at high interest rates. Uh, mortgage loans get more expensive, so it'll have an effect on the housing markets. There's a lot of uh, sort of bad news that has yet to to really affect the markets. But well, and the other the other issue that may be bad news we'll see, which was a 0809 issue as well, is to the extent that we raise rates, other banks, not just in in Europe and the UK, but other banks are raising their rates too, uh, right? Because they really are forced to if they want or don't want all the money to float in our direction. That's going to make a repayment of debt in uh, developing countries, for example, much more expensive than it is now. And we may see, or do you think we're going to see uh, debt crises in some developing countries? Uh, it is something to keep a very close eye on, and not just developing countries. If you look at the size of the United States debt as a share of GDP today versus where it was in Paul Volcker's days when he started tightening in 1981, it's a very different calculus. U.S. debt's going to get a lot more expensive as well as everyone else's. So I think we do have to be careful of that. Once again, the exchange rate variation tends to be a shock absorber. That's why countries allow their exchange rates to float. But you can get into crisis if you don't manage it well. Well, let's put this back a little bit more in the trade lens, going back to the UK situation. Scott, you mentioned earlier that the currency drop could make exports cheaper for the UK, which in turn could benefit American purchasers. What do we buy from the United Kingdom? And will we likely see increased UK exports to the US over time? I think we'll see an uptick in the near term, but uh, a lot of what we buy is, uh, is services. It's a great time to visit the United Kingdom. The tourism will be a relative bargain, although because the underlying energy costs are going up, I think it'll cost a lot more pounds to, to do uh, certain things that, like, like fill up a, a, the petrol tank of a rental car uh, that it would have a while ago. But certainly there's a lot of services trade between the two economies, and the strong dollar will help U.S. firms who are importing those services from the U.K. Well, we sell them a good bit of manufactured stuff, machinery, electrical machinery, aircraft, which is a, always a big item. So this may be good news for uh, manufacturing jobs here. Uh, we'll see. I mean, the question is uh, whether the recession uh, or a question is whether recession takes hold in the UK, which is going to cut demand for all this stuff. Yes, that's the downside, particularly of capital goods. Well, let's turn now to something we've discussed a few times recently on the podcast, which is an outbound investment review mechanism. There was some news this week. What's going on and what's coming down the pike? Well, this is a raining soap opera, I think, in Washington. This thing has been up and down so many times that I've lost count. I think it has four strikes against it, and now it looks like it's coming up to bat for, for number five. After not making it into legislation in 2018 and 2021 and 2022, most recently in August when it disappeared from the CHIPS Act, there is now talk, really confirmed by a speech that Jake Sullivan gave a couple of weeks ago, that the administration intends to do something on this in this area administratively. I think probably that's better than legislation because it'll inevitably be more flexible and also could be removed rather easily if uh, the administration decided that it would be better off without it. Whereas with legislation, you know, you're kind of stuck with it. That doesn't make it a good idea, but it, it at least makes it less of a bad idea to do it administratively. 
In talking to people in the administration about that, I've learned a couple things. One is that if you're reading press stories about this, it doesn't seem to be as far along as the press may tell you it is, that uh, it's definitely being developed. Uh, so this is not a secret, but there are lots of details and I think they've not all been worked out yet. So, you know, don't expect the usual Friday five o'clock announcement from the administration on, on this particular issue, um, at least this week. Second, uh, they continue to say, as they've said all along, that this proposal is going to be narrow and targeted. And I think we have to wait for the fine print to see what that means and to see if they've accomplished that objective. And that's important because the biggest criticism of legislation uh, has always been that it was not narrow and targeted, that and that it left uh, by not being specific about what was covered. You know, it, it ultimately left it up to the administration to decide what was covered. And until they did that, or even after they did it, depending upon how they did it, it might end up covering everything uh, to every country. I don't think that's the intent. But if you build in clauses like, you know, the president Here's the list of things that we're going to require uh, sectors to which we're going to review investments uh, overseas. But then also the president may declare additional sectors in the future, or he may identify you know, any other uh, sector that is going to be susceptible to review. The signal to business uh, when they do that is everything is subject to review and a prudent company is going to send in all of its proposed outbound investments to the government to review. That's going to create a bandwidth issue for the government, which has to stand up some kind of process to do all this, which presumably would be part of an executive order if, if the administration does it. And if they do that, then, you know, there's a real risk they get overloaded immediately with an enormous numbers of, a number of proposed outbound investments, 99% of which are benign, but which are submitted in an excess of caution. That's probably not good. It's not good for investment. It's not good for global economic growth. It's not good for our economy. So that's why they say it's going to be narrowed and targeted so they can prevent that. It's not entirely clear to me, you know, how they're going to go about doing that and how they can do it in a way that doesn't leave the door open to other things that might be added later on. So we will see, you know, their intent is to make it small. My guess is the effect will be big. It'll be significant also because it will be an historic change. Uh, in our country's policy, we've always favored an open investment policy. And this is suggesting that we're going to shut the door on outbound investment. And one of the things that, I mean, the argument for doing it is security. We've discussed that before, national security. And, you know, that's an argument that needs to be respected. But lurking behind it is the feeling, I think, on the part of some people in the administration, which is an argument that you see in progressives and particularly in labor unions, which is that investment is zero sum. If you're investing abroad, that means you're not investing here. You know, a dollar sent to Mexico is a dollar not spent in the United States. And that means a job created in Mexico is a job lost in the United States. That's simply wrong. It's empirically wrong. But the myth continues. And I'm a little concerned that lurking behind this whole thing is the thought that, well, if we discourage investment abroad, then we're going to have more domestic investment and we're going to have more jobs and growth here which ignores the fact that when you invest in abroad, you create jobs here because you're investing basically in supply chains and they're supply chains that are integrally tied to the American economy. And so it's, it's a win-win. Outbound investment is a win-win. 
And I hate to see us lose sight of that. I hope that doesn't happen. Look, Bill's exactly right about the, the, the win-win nature of foreign investment. And I would say that the idea that, that it is a zero-sum game is not just wrong. It's the opposite of right. I mean, it just it couldn't be further from the truth. If you look at the companies that invest abroad, they're, they're responsible for half the, the exports and 75% of the private research and development. They create a lot of jobs. I know the company I worked for for many, many years didn't export a lot because products were low priced and frequently purchased. You tended to make them near the consumer or wherever that might be. But the, the R&D and other operations were globalized. And those global R&D and engineering jobs and a logistics job tended to be in the U.S. and were, were wonderful jobs. So that is the business model of a lot of American companies. But look, I, I find this hilarious because on the one level, it's a classic Washington soap opera because you have the Congress cheerleading the administration to go do something so they don't have to. Perhaps they just don't know what to do and don't want to say so. But in this situation, given the complexity in, of this and the importance of free and open investment to the U.S. economy, this is one where I'd say, don't just do something, stand there, figure out what it is you want, okay, and how you can actually get it. Stop drafting bills like the one that was surfaced with uh, Senators Casey and Cornyn, where when you looked under the scope, uh, it covered U.S. and non-U.S. persons. That is everyone on the planet. And it's like, no, you don't want to go there. So ultimately, we're going to need a statute, I think. I mean, look, CFIUS operates by statute. Okay, there, there, there is a law that governs how the, how the Committee on Foreign Investment uh, in the United States undertakes its work. And you'll, you'll need that at some point. Executive orders can get you started, but they don't get you very far. So why don't you figure out what you want first, I say. Scott, I'm glad you bring up CFIUS because that addresses another soap opera story, which is which agency will ultimately have the authority to oversee this new committee. In some ways, it parallels the existing authority of BIS. In other ways, it creates a mirror for CFIUS. Bill, you were undersecretary of BIS. What do you think? Well, when I had the job, I would have been volunteering to take it over. Just, you know, anything you can do to increase the size of your empire. You know, that's the first commandment of bureaucracy. But this has been kind of gone back and forth. One of the smaller criticisms of the legislation was that it made the U.S. Trade Representative the chair of the committee. It set up a committee that, as I recall, had 19 different agencies on it, and USTR was going to chair it. They subsequently, uh, in, in a revised version of the bill, the latest revised version of the bill, that was dropped. I think it was dropped because everybody on the planet pointed out that it was a bad idea, including USTR, who pointed out that they don't have the bandwidth to do it, number one. And that's not what they do. They negotiate agreements. Uh, they don't run regulatory programs. So the, the latest iteration of the bill leaves it up to the president to designate a chair, which is probably you know, the safest solution to the problem. It's a variation of what Scott just said. If you don't know what to do, drop it on the president let him figure it out. The obvious candidates are Commerce and Treasury. Treasury runs CFIUS. My guess in this administration, if they were going to do it, they'll probably uh, give it to Commerce. What would happen inside Commerce, I wouldn't want to predict. Uh, BIS would be a good candidate, but they're overstressed as, as is because they not only have export controls, which has become you know a big deal as we've been talking about, but as of earlier this year, they inherited the, the, the inbound telecommunications equipment issue. The, you know, how do we make sure that the Huawei equipment isn't stocking our, our telecommunications network? 
So they're now in charge of that too. I'm not sure if I had the job now that I would be volunteering for this, but I know I would have 25 years ago. Well, let's turn now to a fishy topic. There is an interesting new visual in the New York Times this week that has an interactive map that looks at some of Chinese fishing operations off the coast of South America. What can we learn from this report and what does it say about MC12 outcomes that we saw over the summer? Well, it reminds me that uh, one of the hardest things to explain to a politician is the idea of opportunity cost and uh, the fact that if uh, you don't take action, other things happen. Uh, and uh, this, is a, this is the story of fish subsidies. I mean, I remember uh, fisheries being uh, a fishery subsidies agreement being one of the things that failed to launch back in 1999 at the third ministerial conference in Seattle, Washington. The WTO has a long history of talking and not doing, extending more than two decades. In the meantime, diets improved and demand for protein increased worldwide and technology advanced. And what we have now are people who, who like fish and want more of it. And you have these amazing ships that can basically vacuum every living creature out of the oceans. Or if they're not there now, they're close to it. And while we all agree that would be a very bad thing because then there are no fish for next year or next week or next month, but we've done nothing to discipline it over the 25 years where the diets changed and uh, to, for the better and this, the, so the demand increased and the technology improved. Uh, so I don't, know how, I don't know how to put the genie back in the bottle now. The, the story about the Chinese fishing off of the coast of the Galapagos, uh, off the coast of Ecuador, is it's a good uh, example of the limitations of the agreement that the WTO reached in, in June. They reached an agreement to limit direct subsidies on illegal, unreported, and I forget what the other one uh, is, fishing. But they did not reach agreement on the second half, which is, I think, the larger half, which is subsidies that contribute to that. And that contributing to it is, you know, in particular, subsidies to build the large boats that the Chinese are doing and fuel subsidies. So it's not direct subsidies on the fishing. It's the subsidies that, that enable the fishing to take place. And the Chinese are biggest subsidizers in the world on that particular uh, question. So they have the most at stake. I, I'm not sure that they were actually the one that stuck the knife into that particular piece of it. I suspect it had more to do with the Indians. But what came out of the conference, the ministerial conference, was an agreement to continue to discuss that issue, hopefully to come to a resolution on it uh, in time for the next ministerial, which has not been set yet, but it will probably be a year and a half from now. So there's a lot more fish that are going to die in the interim, and they're going to die as a result of these enormous Chinese vessels that literally vacuum the ocean and scoop up all the fish. This is not selective. And that's why it's such a challenge to the environment and, and, and raises the possibility that, you know, we're going to run out. And right now, most of what they're doing is legal. And so we really need the second half of the agreement to try to put kind of a cap on this kind of activity and restore some sense of balance to the ocean ecosystem. Well, as a trade nerd, I also have to say that sometimes dolphins and turtles are caught as well. So it's not just fish that are being vacuumed up uh, in the oceans. Last question for today is how will countries go about enforcing something like this? It seems if you have a trawler off the coast of somewhere very remote, that it would be difficult for an international organization to, in good faith, enforce something that they've agreed to. So what's the plan? How will countries actually see these outcomes through? I'm not sure there is a plan. 
yet. What uh, the WTO Director General has been doing lately is simply in, encouraging countries to rapidly move to, ra- to ratify the what was agreed to, which is the first step. But building up a you know a maritime capability to enforce is difficult. It's expensive. Because it's not land-based, it's harder to get a grip on. You can see some areas, uh, the Philippines being one of them, where they've attempted to interdict smaller Chinese fishers that are, in the, the, from the Philippines' point of view, intruding on Philippine waters. This is one of those areas where China claims the waters as well, although their claims are, uh, have been really disallowed by uh, international uh, arbitrators. But they fish anyway, and it's very hard for the Philippines, which is, whose Navy is not as big as the Chinese Navy uh, by far, to, you know, capture these vo- boats and, and force them to comply. So, and I think, you know, nobody has suggested an international maritime police force. That's far down the road. I think what we have to rely on in the end is the integrity of the, com- of the countries that are participating in the agreement. And I mean, to be fair about it, I think the, the, some of the countries that have been unwilling to agree have been unwilling to agree because they know if they do agree, they're going to have to shape up. And at this point, they're not excited about doing that. But if we can get them to agreement, then uh, we can go back and, and then at that point, twist their arms into doing, doing a better job of their own enforcement, I hope. I think Bill's right. And I think you've also got to take into account technology because there are the small traditional vessels are not the kind of risk to large schools of fish. And fish don't exist as individuals or as pairs. They exist in schools. And if you overfish the school, the whole school disappears, falls apart. And it just, you know, we, we, know, we know enough about uh, the lives of fish to be able to say that pretty conclusively. But the technology you're using has a big impact on the, on the results and the degree to which what you're doing is, can be sustained over time. And I know, the, I know the technology answer, Scott, drones. Well, that would be a technology for enforcement. Mar- maritime uh, drones but, circling but you, out in the Pacific. It could, it could well be. What you really need is some disciplines. If you're going to use the advanced technology ships, the fishery fleets, then you need to have higher disciplines than, uh, than local fishermen in local waters. It's a very different problem. Well, thanks for tuning in for this week's episode of The Trade Guys. And thanks, as always, to Scott and Bill for their comments. We will be back next week. To our listeners, if you have a question for The Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have The Trade Guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.